Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV, and I've been that for 100 episodes now. This is the 100th. So it's about two years. I can't believe it. It seems like it's only about 98 or so. So today we're going to do what all the big guys do on TV when they reach a milestone like this. We're going to reprise some of the past shows. I have clips from some of the more interesting things I said. At least they tell me that they were selected on that basis. And I'm going to comment on them, uh, including corrections in at least one case, I think. So let's begin. um, Oh, no, before we begin, I should say that the most popular show was the first show, which has continued to gather an audience right to the present day, and it's had 3,000 hits, 3,500. That was on evolutionary psychology. We don't have a clip from that, but the point was that There's no such thing as evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology is premised on determinism. It's premised on the idea that natural selection would determine human psychology, human behavior, but it doesn't. Or put it this way, a genuinely evolutionary psychology would recognize that man evolved big enough brain to have a conceptual faculty which operates volitionally so that his beliefs, values, and therefore actions follow from his choices. His choice basically to think, to be objective, to look at reality and go by what he learns about reality or to drift along in some kind of fog or even blank out his mind and therefore adopt whatever values strike his emotions as reasonable and whatever actions he feels like taking. So evolution is responsible for the fundamental of human psychology, which is a conceptual and therefore self-critical faculty, but evolution cannot make you into a criminal or to an aggressor or to a good husband or a bad husband or any of the kind of things that are ascribed to people in evolution, quote, evolutionary psychology. Okay, let's get to the reprises that's here's the first one that they're in the order that they were supplied to me and i think that is a good variety what do you think of andrew tate being banned across all social media now let me interrupt you know who andrew tate is i don't remember but the issue here is is the refusal to carry somebody on Twitter or Facebook or some social media censorship. I'm in favor of free speech, and that's why I support these bans. What do you say? Did, did you? 
Yes, you got it right. I'm in favor of the right to free speech not being interrupted at all. And that includes the right to exclude from your property whomever you want for whatever reason you want. So there I'm combating the idea that if uh, Zuckerberg uh, doesn't want to carry an, uh, a person who's espousing ideas he believes are bad or destructive, that that's censoring the guy. No, that's Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg's freedom of speech and the other owner's freedom of speech. The freedom of speech includes the right to not let someone use your microphone or your platform to spread ideas you disagree with. It's not just the positive, I get to use my property to spread my ideas. It means I control my property and I can stop other people from using my property. I can't stop them from using theirs. Censorship is a term applicable only to government action. Now let's go to the next clip. You exist for the sake of avoiding punishment. I have to interrupt here. This is reading a quote. I'm not saying this. That's why I'm looking to the side. I'm reading Ayn Rand. You seek escape from pain. We seek the achievement of happiness. You exist for the sake of avoiding punishment. We exist for the sake of earning rewards. Threats will not make us function. Fear is not our incentive. It is not death that we wish to avoid, but life that we wish to live. That's from Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged. The next one. What about violent games? Is playing them immoral? No. What about sick games? I mean, you make up the script. No. It's not immoral to play any video game. The only thing that's immoral is either blanking out your mind or acting upon, you know, to violate the rights of others or do something unjust to others. But this comes under the general heading of, um, is it immoral to think certain thoughts or to experience certain emotions or to have certain fantasy? No, morality is not concerned with censoring you. It's not concerned with prohibiting this and prohibiting that. It's telling you how to achieve your happiness. And it tells you essentially one thing. Think, turn on your mind and focus. Now, I have to disagree with Professor Binswanger here on one thing. He gave too narrow a view of what morality condemns. It's not just being unjust to others or not thinking. There's abandoning your own goals due to an unreasonable consideration. There's, you know, the failure of courage just to get what you want, to go after what you need in life. There's uh, failures of integrity where you give in under social pressure. So there are other things, any violation of the virtues that um, Ayn Rand lists in Atlas Shrugged, and it sounds like I'm quoting authority, but those are the virtues, rationality, independence, integrity, honesty, 
justice, productiveness, and pride. So you can be immoral in more ways than I listed. But the point was correct that morality is not about telling you not to think certain thoughts or not to feel certain emotions or not to enjoy activities that uh, do not uh, destroy you or others. It's about how to be happy. Let's go to the next one. The whole equality concern, forget whether you're for it or against it, the whole idea of looking at equality, at how you stack up relative to other people, is a collectivized, socialized mind at work. A virtuous man, an independent man, does not judge himself by relation to others. He does not say, gosh, I'm in the third quartile here, and I really want to get into the first. He does not invent thinking, I wonder if somebody else is going to have a better invention. Boy, I wish I were the only guy inventing things. That is so foreign to the mentality that's right, that lifted mankind out of the cave. So uh, I hope that was clear. The point is that your life is your concern, not how your life stacks up against somebody else. And if somebody has more than you, that could be great for you. If he earned it, if someone has less than you, that's not good for you, and it's not your concern. Well, why isn't your concern if it's not good for you? Because you're not in control of him and you're not living his life. He's living his life. You wish he would produce more. It's in your interest that everybody be happy, rich, and smart. Um, that was the one I played. Let's go to the next one. An armed populace is no protection at all against tyranny. None. Domestic tyranny. It's a great protection against foreign country taking over like Russia is in the, trying to do in the Ukraine. But if you're talking about a, at a dictatorship arising in the U.S., there's not going to be anybody, if it can rise, that's going to fight for freedom. So ideas that make a country go to dictatorship, and those ideas have to be held by a majority. Let me elaborate on that if I might, and I might. The conservatives argue with some plausibility on the surface. If the government uh, confronts an armed populace, there are limits to what it can get away with because the populace will revolt and, and use their guns to stop a tyranny when it's forming or to overthrow it once it's formed. No. No, if the state intellectually of the country is so low that a dictatorship has enough support to take power, then there aren't going to be any good factions in the populace. And what they're going to take up arms for, if they do, is some other horrible thing. It's not going to be freedom fighters versus statists. It's going to be religious status versus subjectivist statists. 
So, which we're just about, that's going to be the Trump people versus the woke people. It's not going to be objectivists versus the dictatorship. So, the guns that uh, people want to have are going to be used against the most rational people if an, a dictatorship arises and then we go to a revolt or civil war. Boy, you don't want that. This is one I enjoy, this next one here. What is the character and psychology that's described of God? Here's an omnipotent being who can say, let there be light and the sun appears. And he is the most touchy, petty, petulant approval seeker that you could imagine. It's obviously a projection of the psychology of the people who created God. If you say, thanks God for uh, helping my parents create me, that was really wonderful. Now I'm going to uh, live and do great things and I'm, I'm going to ignore you. No, you go to church and praise me, get down on your knees, tell me how wonderful I am, or you will go to hell and be persecuted and tormented. How long? 10,000 years? No, not enough. Hundred No, forever. That's how important it is to me that you tell me I'm good, because maybe I'm not. God is such an inferiority complex. A confident man doesn't go around like, how am I doing? How am I doing? He knows how he's doing. He knows he's good. He's embodied goodness, supposedly. Yet if somebody dares question him or not bow before him and not keep his arbitrary commandments, not place God first, they're going to suffer torment forever. I was a little uh, excited there. I hope that came across that if there were a God and he were good and he were omnipotent, he wouldn't be the God of the Bible. He wouldn't want you to spend your life in submission praising him. It's only a God who's insecure who would need the praise of people. Is Elon Musk an altruist, I was asked. Elon Musk indicated that the fundamental motivation for his actions is to solve potential problems for, quote, humanity. And then he asks, is that in alignment with the objectivist ethics? In reality, I can tell you that his motivation is not collectivistic and altruistic. How do I know? Because he's too creative for that. In order to have creative solutions, you've got to love what you do and have your subconscious be integrated around that thing. And you, the subject matter has to fascinate you. That's how you get really creative solutions. If it's something you're doing out of duty to a collective, there won't be any creative thought. So the fact that he is creative suggests he has an individualistic interpretation of solving humanity's problems. Many of these are answers to questions. And that's what the theory.practice dichotomy really is. Well, abstractly, this should work. But as we observe in concrete particular facts, it doesn't work. It's good in theory, but it's bad in practice. No, if it's Bad in practice, it's got to be bad in theory. Theory is for practice. But to, in order to understand the relationship between the abstract and the concrete and how there could be something properly abstracted that would have to work, you need a theory of measurement omission, 
which Ayn Rand developed, and nobody knows about that outside of objectivism. So. Um, let me explain that, that last part about measurement mission. There's a problem of how do abstractions relate to concrete particulars in reality, which is what I said was behind how does theory relate to practice. And in order to understand that, you have to have a theory of what's called universals, of how a single term like man could refer to all the human beings, or a single term like energy apply in physics to all the instances of energy that there are in the world, which are so different. And in order to get a correct and decent theory of the relation of abstractions to reality, you need measurement omission as your principle. Measurement omission is Ayn Rand's answer to the problem of the universals. The absence of the theory, uh, the theory of measurement omission is why people think there's a theory practice dichotomy. Ultimately, it doesn't work directly from, oh, they don't know this, so they don't know that. This Let's go to the next one, because there are too many. Um, this is interesting. Can being a professional games player, poker, chess, sports, esports, fulfill man's need for productivity, assuming you can make a living at it, takes it seriously, pursues growth, etc.? Yes, in essence. Why? Because it's entertaining to watch. So take poker, which is a zero-sum game. Millions of people watch poker on cable TV. It's very interesting, and it calls upon thinking skills. The ones who win, and the ability, which I lack a lot, the ability to master your emotions. The one reason why sports is so popular today is the lack of heroes. There are heroes to admire, people doing great things in sports, but not in the real world very much. So um, that was when I said the lack of heroes, I meant outside of sports, which makes people go to sports to have something to look up to, some example of excellence, competence, dedication, courage. Why do philosophers now write their papers in such hard and unreadable language? It is often the case that a paper says nothing being 70 pages long. There's so many reasons that I wanted to, to get to the essential one. And I think the essential is philosophy has been severed from life. Philosophers, particularly the ones writing those papers, regard it as a game like soccer. And the way you score a goal is by recognition from your colleagues and advancement in the academic pecking order. And the only way that you can do that is to publish. And the more you publish, the better. And you don't want to be understood. Because if you're understandable, it looks like you're simplistic. This one uh, got a large number of views. 
The question is not a legal question. People try to escape the moral question by going to the legal issue. The legal issue of, well, the Second Amendment does or does not give Americans the right to bear arms, to have guns. That's not the issue. If the Second Amendment does not give Americans the rights to bear arms, they still have that right. And the Second Amendment should be modified to allow that, to state that. Now that needs a little clarification too. The moral issue is really, does the government have the right to punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty? So for instance, these school shootings, these horrible, tragedies that occur due to some people's near insanity, I suppose, or, or insanity, that doesn't give the government the right to prevent you and me from owning guns to defend ourselves. And there's a good argument that the more people who own guns, the less these shooting sprees will go on. They go to to schools to shoot because schools are gun-free zones in part. In part, it's psychological. So the argument against gun control is not, well, the Second Amendment says this or says that. The argument against it is that you're innocent until proven guilty, and the government has no right to stop you from owning a gun unless there's probable cause that you will use it to initiate force. Now, what is second-handedness? More formally, it's called social metaphysics or the social primacy of consciousness. You take other people's say-so as if it were fact on everything. People become your substitute for reality. So you live second-hand they give you their ideas for you to use just as if they gave you their clothes that you got secondhand. So you live on borrowed opinion, borrowed judgment. The uh, essential there was that you take other people to be reality. You take the what others say, and I hope it's not you, my listeners, the social metaphysician, the second-hander, takes the ideas of others to be the same as facts of reality. I used to teach in college, and I would make the point early in the class, existence exists no matter what society thinks. For instance, when Columbus sailed, the society, the, mo the average person, thought the world was flat but they were all wrong. And it's not the case that the world started curving as Columbus sailed. It was always curved, despite the beliefs of the vast majority, almost everyone in, at that time. And invariably, about a third of the class doesn't get it. They're very puzzled. And, and they say to me, but it was flat for them. That's social metaphysics. So this is a good one to end on.
Why? Why the attack? What's going on? Why aren't they sympathetic? Why aren't they doing a dialogue that puts Ayn Rand in a good light? So the question is, why the attacks on Ayn Rand? This came out of a discussion of uh, some treatment of Ayn Rand in the media. Why aren't they spotlighting all of her achievements? And I think it's disturbingly simple. They're second-handers. They live for the approval of other people. They are terrified of being on their own, making their own judgments. And that comes out as a hatred for uh, any philosophy that teaches independence and self-reliance and firsthand values, individualism, uh, of which Ayn Rand is non-pareil, if I'm pronouncing that, unparalleled uh, advocate of you have to live your own life by your own mind. You can't run with the herd. You have to um, make your own thinking correspond to reality as best you can and not accept anything on faith. Let's look, incidentally, as a closing here. These are um, in my living room. There are two paintings by Ayn Rand's husband, Frank O'Connor. They look a little blurry. They're not blurry in reality. Uh, and unfortunately, my head is obscuring parts of them. But um, there are two wonderful paintings, both of them studies not completed, that I got from her estate when she died. And very happy to have them as my constant companions. So that's the reprise of the I don't know if it's the best, but it's the ones we have clips from, from the 100 episodes. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope to see you next week on HBTV. Goodbye.